Hello and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today is Reconstructing the Reconstruction, the Aftermath of Slavery and the Continuing Fight for Equal Justice. Our discussion today takes us from the Civil War fight against slavery to the ongoing fight of Black Americans for equal justice, including the presidents that embraced slavery, those that fought against it, and the monuments that memorialized it. Our guest is Dr. Michael David Cohen. He is an author and historian of 19th century America and its presidents, and is a research professor at the Department of Government and a faculty fellow in the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University. Let's welcome Dr. Michael David Cohen. Welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now tell us, tell us what is considered the reconstruction period after the Civil War and what years did it comprise? Reconstruction was the period right after the Civil War when uh, the United States worked on reincorporating the South back into the Union and for the first time incorporating African Americans, particularly in the South, into the Union as U.S. citizens. Uh, it began, depending on who you ask, either in 1865, when the war ended, or in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation, and it continued into the 1870s. The end date we usually give is 1877. That's when the federal government and the Republican Party um, abandons the idea of using the U.S. military to enforce civil rights of blacks in the South. What did that comprise? Did it comprise, you know, issues of slavery, politics, social and, and economics? What did it comprise? Well, the, the very basic uh, conclusion to the Civil War in terms of black civil rights was the end of slavery with the 13th Amendment at the end of 1865. Uh, but this led to complicated questions about what, what freedom really meant for these people. Did it just mean self-ownership or did it mean other types of rights, other types of opportunities? And it was pretty much agreed that it did bring certain basic human rights, such as the ability to marry, the ability to sign legal contracts. Uh, but did it also involve educational opportunities? Did it also involve the uh, chance to vote, to run for political office, to have real economic independence, even to own land? These were ongoing debates, and for a while during Reconstruction, there were substantial efforts by African Americans in the South and by white Americans, mainly in the North, but some in the South, to, uh, to really expand these rights. By the end of the Reconstruction period, unfortunately, um, a, a final conclusion was settled on that involved very limited opportunities for Blacks. Now, as you said, the Civil War took place from 1861 to 1865. That's right. And, and we all know the North won, um, and, the, and the South was fighting to keep slavery um, intact. So as a historian, what vestiges of the Civil War do you see still present today? There were really two main impacts of the Civil War that we see around today. They're not the only ones, but by far the largest. Uh, one, and certainly the most important one, the one we hear the most about, is in terms of civil rights for Black Americans. Uh, this, the Civil War and the Reconstruction period were 
could one of several inflection points where we see a real movement toward increasing these civil rights. And in that case, it meant uh, creating legal self-ownership, legal freedom. Um, but uh, as I said, by the end of Reconstruction period, the 1870s, there were a lot of limits placed on, on Blacks' rights, uh, ultimately enshrined in what we know as Jim Crow segregation with separate and unequal opportunities and facilities for whites and Blacks. Another inflection point was the uh, civil rights movement of the 1960s, where a lot of people came together to like, end Jim Crow and uh, try to expand uh, voting rights and civil rights, employment rights for Black Americans. And now I think we're in another of those inflection points where people are discussing how police interact with Blacks and more generally how racism is still a part of our society and how we can combat that. The other big impact of the Civil War we see around today is in terms of the size of the federal government. Before the Civil War, the federal government was very small. People mainly interacted with their state and local governments. Uh, really, the only interaction they would have with the federal government was with the post office. Uh, but in order to fight a war, the Union needed to expand the army, expand the bureaucracy, build roads, uh, build railroads. Uh, they established the first income tax uh, to help pay for the war. And uh, that led to a more general expansion of the federal government. During the war, they created the Department of Agriculture, after it, the Department of Justice, the first Department of Education. Uh, and over time, over the next century and a half, we saw a drastic expansion continued of the federal government. Uh, so we had this continued debate going on about what should be, uh, what, what should fall within the purview of the federal government versus the state and local governments that largely comes out of the Civil War. And just for those viewers who are watching, could you explain what exactly is considered Jim Crow? Yes, uh, by, uh, during Reconstruction, a lot of new, uh, new facilities, uh, most notably schools, were created for Black Americans in the South. And these usually, though not always, were separate from the white schools. Uh, and and uh, over time in the 19th century, increasingly facilities started to be separate. There would be separate schools for blacks and whites, separate rail cars for railroad cars for blacks and whites, um, and separate uh, hotels, uh, restaurants for blacks and whites. Uh, and in the 1890s, this situation came came to a legal head. Where in 1896 there was a famous case, Plessy v. Ferguson, where it right. was brought before the Supreme Court. Is it legal under the U.S. Constitution to have these separate facilities? Uh, that particular case, um, as you certainly know, was about uh, railroad cars. There was another case, uh, Cumming v. Board of Education, three years later about education that was related. And in both cases, the Supreme Court decided that it is okay to have these separate facilities as long as they are equal. In practice, they were not equal. The white facilities were generally much better and in case of schools, much better funded than those for blacks. But this, uh, this principle of separate but equal facilities came to be known as Jim Crow. Jim Crow was a character in stories and books uh, that, they, that had a similar situation. So that character came to be the symbol, the name for the situation up until the mid 20th century. And of course, um, there is the case of Brown v. Board of Education, which changed 
um, all those other prior rulings. Yes, yeah. In 1954, that Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court declared that separate facilities were inherently unequal simply by having these facilities, even if they had been provided with equal funding, which they weren't. The idea of putting Blacks in schools specifically for them created a culture of inferiority. So um, that was not, not acceptable under the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Now let's talk about funding. How were these schools funded, these historically Black schools and colleges funded? It was primarily Black Americans themselves, former slaves, who took, made the, the effort to establish these schools to some extent during the Civil War itself and much more rapidly after it. Um, they did secure funding from a number of sources. One was simply their own paychecks. They, they weren't making much money, but they did pull together their money in order to fund especially elementary schools, sometimes high schools, and sometimes colleges. They managed to secure uh, uh, donations from Northern white philanthropists as well. Um, Julius Rosenwald was a famous one. Um, uh, Anna Jeans was another. Uh, who uh, were committed to, uh, to expanding Black education in the South, going beyond simple legal freedom. Uh, and especially in urban areas, they managed to get support from, uh, from city governments. Uh, so a number of cities in the South had true public school systems uh, for Black Americans, and that gradually expanded to rural areas as well. Um, ultimately, the public funding ended up being unequal, uh, as was everything else for blacks and for whites, uh, but they did establish this precedent that continued through the 19th century of uh, public funding for both black and white schools. So uh, when the 13th Amendment took effect in 1865, uh, what types of employment did former slaves um, embark upon? Um, was the education it was the was there an educational setup that was available for them at that time, or did they just become laborers in another right? Uh, the vast majority of blacks in the South uh, before the Civil War had been plantation laborers or farm laborers. They were doing agricultural work on land owned by whites, and that remained the case after the war. At this point, they would legally sign contracts with their former owners or with other white landowners, but uh, not much change in terms of the type of work they were doing. And increasingly, um, especially after Reconstruction ended, the uh, Southern states passed laws that limited their ability even to travel, to, uh, to seek new employment, and to seek better, uh, better contractual uh, better contractual agreements uh, so that they'd get uh, better pay or more freedom. Uh, they, so uh, very little change. There was some educational opportunity in that, especially during Reconstruction, some colleges, as I said, started to open up to Blacks. The University of South Carolina even um, admitted Blacks for several years in the 1870s. The University of Arkansas did very briefly too. Uh, and there were other, school, other schools specifically set up for Black Americans, uh, such as Strait University in Louisiana, Howard University in DC, which was initially meant to be uh, biracial, but ended up being a largely Black institution. 
Uh, and these provided a few opportunities for Blacks to get a, a real professional education in law, in medicine, in a number of areas. But uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of even higher educational opportunities for Blacks were focused on uh, manual education, on industrial education, meaning training either for agriculture or for very uh, low-level manual trades. And we all know Senator Kamala Harris went to Howard University, and she is now vice presidential nominee. That's right. Now, one of the things I've always wondered about is the Declaration states that all men are created equal. How did they square that? How did the founders and some of the presidents you've studied, how did they square that, that all men are created equal, and then, you know, then they were slavery? Uh, it, uh, it was a challenge for them, and they, they resolved it in a couple ways. I think for the earlier period around the founders, it's useful to look at Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he wrote that line, all men are created equal, and he also was a major slave owner. Uh, when he wrote the Declaration, he actually included a couple clauses that condemned slavery explicitly. He said slavery is a horrible thing that the King of England has forced upon the colonies. Uh, he took these people out of Africa, people who had done no harm to him, and sent them to America, a land they didn't know, to be forced laborers. Uh, but as Jefferson surely knew would happen, the committee in charge of the declaration removed those clauses because uh, the US economy, as it was starting, uh, really depended on slavery. Um, that was true of the South where uh, uh, plantation farm owners depended largely on black labor to produce tobacco and later cotton. And in the North where industries uh, were involved in uh, producing products from those cotton or uh, trading on the seas, the products from the cotton, the cotton itself, the tobacco, and other crops. So, so many white people in the U.S. depended on slavery that there was really, uh, even people like Jefferson and like John Adams who opposed it or thought it was in some way wrong or inconsistent, uh, they recognized that they were not going to convince their colleagues to end it. So that developed this idea of slavery as a necessary evil. It doesn't really fit with the U.S. system. Jefferson referred to it famously as a fire bell in the night, but it was something that they needed to accept. That changed over time. Around the 1830s, a new intellectual and legal position came into being. Uh, John C. Calhoun was one of the famous leaders of it, a one-time vice president of the U.S. Uh, that slavery wasn't a necessary, necessary evil, it was a positive good. The principle being it, slavery was actually good for everyone. It was good for white people and it was even good for black people. They argued that, the, that black people were at a different stage of human development, that if they were given freedom, that would actually be bad for them. They weren't ready for it. What they needed to be taught now was hard work and humility, the, the elements of Christianity that seemed to fit well to them with slavery. Uh, so slavery was the best thing for them. And some of these people, uh, judges, lawyers, law professors, intellectuals, explicitly argued that the Declaration of Independence was wrong, that Jefferson was wrong. Uh, all men are not created equal, and they are not all entitled by their creator with equal rights, such as liberty. Uh, the presidents I've studied, uh, James K. Polk uh, in the 1840s, uh, 
uh, Zachary Taylor and Millard Fillmore in the 40s and 50s, they, uh, they operated in that era and they accepted this principle that slavery was actually the best and most appropriate thing at that point in history for Black Americans. That's quite interesting how our history has evolved over time and how some of the prior presidents had embraced it. Um, it's, it's a negative part of our history and I think we need to acknowledge it. But moving on to another inflection point is the statues. This is a current issue. Um, please tell us who erected these statues and why. Well, Confederate statues really went up in two waves. They're, there are two types of them. The first was statues to the common soldier recognizing their sacrifice. These, these were put up in both the North and the South. Uh, they generally depicted generic soldiers and often were put in cemeteries. Uh, they began going up during the Civil War and continued right after it. The ones that get most of the attention today and certainly have created a lot more controversy are Confederate statues, or Southern statues, I should say, of Confederate leaders. Uh, military and political leaders, Jefferson Davis, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and those went up much later and for a different reason. Uh, they, they were put up uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries with the bulk of them between 1900 and 1920. The goals were uh, somewhat more complicated. They didn't just want to remember the Civil War or the Confederacy, they wanted to tell a particular narrative of uh, these were white Southerners who donated money through organizations such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, and the narrative they wanted to tell, uh, we know today as the Lost Cause Movement, uh, that the Civil War, uh, well, when, I should say, when the Civil War began, the South, Southern states seceded because they wanted to protect slavery and expand it into new areas. But in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, that didn't sound good. They didn't want to defend slavery. So they argued instead, and this became the dominant historical narrative of the time, that the South had seceded for other intellectual views, such as, uh, such as states' rights, uh, a Southern way of life based in agriculture, and that they rallied around certain, certain great leaders, such as these military and political men. So part of the way they told this narrative was to put up these statues to show these are the great men that we were focused on. We weren't thinking about slavery, we were thinking about them. And another side purpose of that was that it helped enforce the Jim Crow system of white supremacy. That uh, if you look up at these big statues of great white men, uh, you see that they're the ones who lead our society. Then if you are not one of them, um, if you're in particular, a black person, then you realize the ideas you realize you're not part of that leadership. You shouldn't be involved in politics. Uh, you should submit to your role in life. Is that why they made these statues so large? They're often appearing larger than life. Could that, could that be the purpose was to intimidate others? Uh, Yes, and to, to impress and to intimidate. So, and yeah, some of these are huge. Uh, Stone Mountain in Georgia, probably the most famous of the really huge ones. Uh, and uh, can, you, they, can you tell us what Stone Mountain is? Uh, Stone Mountain is a, an, on an actual Stone Mountain. It's um, a relief of, of Southern leaders, uh, of military leaders um, on the side of the mountain. Uh, it's uh, one of the it sort of is a, uh, you could say a miniature version of Mount Rushmore. 
not quite on that scale. But uh, these very large statues, or in this case, relief, uh, yes, they, uh, they intimidate, they uh, impress with the size, the grandeur of, um, of leaders of a society that was in fact based on slavery, but they do it without talking about slavery. Do you think in a way it was a way to legitimize um, these uh, Civil War uh, icons, I guess you'd call them? Uh, yes, and to legitimize them, celebrate them by divorcing them from the cause for which they fought. Mm-hmm. Now, let's switch gears a bit. Um, I know you've also studied the papers of Susan B. Anthony and, and uh, Katie Stanton. Could you explain a little bit about what they did um, with regards to whether it was abolition or women's movement? The period before the Civil War was a sometimes called the Age of Reform. Uh, There were a series of reform efforts to improve uh, Americans culturally, to improve their government, and these fell along a variety of areas. There was a temperance movement to uh, convince people to temper their consumption of alcohol, Um, a movement to improve the treatment of prisoners, uh, and most famously, a movement uh, for, uh, to oppose slavery, or in some cases, to abolish it, uh, anti-slavery or abolition movements. Uh, Both Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were involved in the anti-slavery movement in the 1840s and 1850s. They, um, A lot of women found that the reform movements were a way for them to have a much more public uh, uh, persona than they could otherwise, and women were largely confined to what was known as the domestic sphere. They were supposed to stay in the home, take care of their families, not uh, take jobs out in the public, or speak publicly. But because these reform movements were connected with the idea of nurturing and um, helping unfortunate people, they were thought of as something that it was more appropriate for women to be involved with, and these generally were the first ways in which women, uh, usually white women, but also black women, would be able to uh, speak publicly. Uh, Both uh, Stanton and Anthony uh, became part of that, and this led some women in the abolition movement to think, uh, well, if we're uh, if we're trying to expand these rights for the the men and women at the lowest uh, rung of our society, those who have faced the greatest discrimination, blacks, then why can't we also use this type of activism to improve the opportunities for white women? And they did. They started holding meetings, uh, local meetings around the country, mainly in the north, uh, to uh, ex- to call for more rights for women, and in 1848, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott organized the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention in upstate New York, which was uh, one of the earliest, uh, what they referred to as national women's rights conventions, attended by both men and women, both blacks and whites. Frederick Douglass, the the leading black abolitionist, was one of the attendees. to call for, among other rights, uh, women's getting the vote. It took a very long time for that to happen, but Stanton and Anthony remained leaders of that movement uh, well beyond the Civil War up into the early 20th century, though unfortunately, they didn't actually live to see the 19th Amendments in 1920. So much work and so much we have to be thankful for that these women uh, worked so hard and were so dedicated 
to the cause of voting. Um, lastly, on this topic, uh, what about uh, black women getting the right to vote? Um, what happened with that and, and the uh, 19th Amendment? Well, after the Civil War, there was really a debate among women who were pushing for, uh, for the women's vote. Uh, they, on, one, on the one hand, they generally supported black rights and they had supported abolition and the Civil War cause. But now as they see a movement toward giving black men the vote, uh, it created a rift. Some, uh, some white women who supported women's suffrage uh, said that, yes, uh, blacks' rights are most important here. This is the moment to give black men the vote and we should put women's rights on the back burner. Others, uh, including Anthony and Stanton, uh, said that, uh, well, we need to really push for white women's votes here. And sometimes they would use what amounted to racist language, uh, saying that it's horrible that we're giving black men, the lowest of men as they saw them, uh, the vote, but not giving it even to refined, middle-class, educated white women. Now, the men, the black men got the vote with the 15th Amendment in 1870, I believe. That's correct. Uh, and there had been, uh, a lot of these white women had wanted that amendment also to give the vote to women, but it didn't. Uh, that, uh, so these two movements kind of divorced uh, between civil rights for blacks and, uh, uh, and a movement to put white women's rights first. Uh, those black women who continued to push for black women's suffrage and women's suffrage generally, they remained active uh, in, throughout the 19th and into the 20th century, but they were largely shunned by the major organizations of white women, um, the, which ultimately became the National American Women's Suffrage Association in the early 20th century. Uh, and uh, it was unfortunately uh, two separate movements of blacks and black and white women pushing for that when women did get the vote with the 19th Amendment, uh, some black women were able to vote, but uh, since, the, since the Reconstruction period, there had been large amounts of suppression of black men's votes uh, in the South, even though they legally had the vote through the 15th Amendment, new provisions uh, at the state level, such as poll taxes, uh, grandfather clauses, if your grandfather didn't vote, you didn't vote. And literacy tests was uh, another. Yes, literacy tests, uh, and sometimes very difficult literacy tests, not just that you needed to prove that you could read basic English, but that you were given some very difficult document to read or interpret, such as the Constitution. Um, and these same tactics could be applied to black women, just as they were applied to, to a black men. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the famous historian and uh, black civil rights activist in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, he supported women's, uh, women's voting because he said, votes for women is votes for black women. Um, and in some cases, black women, as I said, were able to vote, but unfortunately, uh, they were very often suppressed just like black men's. Mm -hmm. And um, one, one more topic I wanted to mention before we close is that James Knox Polk, uh, he had a family separation uh, policy with his slaves. And that he again was in the White House at the time. And from what I understand, he had straw purchases, even purchased those slaves. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about that? Yes, a number of slave owners liked to think of themselves as kindly ones who had some uh, 
concern for the well-being of the people they owned. Uh, that applies to James K. Polk, it applies to Zachary Taylor, his successor, whom I'm studying now. Um, often these, these efforts to be nice to their slaves were really um, at least in part uh, economically motivated. In Taylor's case, he kept writing to his overseer that he wanted the slaves uh, to be treated well, to be fed well. He said in his will that he wanted to be sure they, uh, that they weren't overworked. And all of this may have reflected in part a real concern for the slaves, but uh, it certainly was at least in part uh, because if you treat them well, if you feed them well, then they'll live longer and produce more cotton for you and make more profit for you. In the case of Polk, yes, he had this policy that he didn't like to separate families unless he needed to. And unless he needed to meant unless it was going to be profitable for him. So he, he didn't do it a lot, but he did sometimes, either through selling his slaves or buying slaves without their spouses, without their children, without their parents, or sometimes by moving his own slaves around, since uh, he owned for a little while, he owned uh, plantations in different areas. He uh, would keep some of his slaves uh, near his home in Tennessee and most of them at his plantation in Mississippi and a few at uh, the White House in DC. So he might send one spouse down to Mississippi but leave the other in Tennessee. So they were in fact separated. Um, as far as his purchasing new slaves, when he was in the White House, he wanted to keep that quiet because he felt that there was nothing wrong with it. And he wrote this explicitly in letters to uh, family and friends, that uh, there was nothing wrong with buying slaves. He wasn't breaking any laws. He didn't think he was doing anything immoral, but he recognized that a lot of people did think that, that it was wrong to buy men and women to separate families uh, and children. So he would have uh, colleagues of his, um, business associates or sometimes family members, uh, by the slaves uh, on his behalf in their own name, then they would quietly transfer them into Polk's name so that the newspapers wouldn't get wind of his having bought these people, uh, including a number of times teenagers without the rest of their families. That's just terrible. Yes. I, I don't know how these people supposedly could be people of God. The Bible says, treat others as you would want to, others to treat you. And then how do they reconcile um, treating others differently and even separating them from their own family? I just don't understand uh, it. I've done some research into the religious arguments for and against slavery, and both sides felt that they were on the side of God, that they were on the side of the Bible. And the Bible does refer to enslavement. Um, and uh, people in favor of slavery, they would argue that there is slavery in the Bible, uh, therefore God has sanctioned slavery. Um, those against slavery would argue that yes, there is slavery in the Old Testament, but it's not endorsed in the New Testament, and right. that's a sign of progression, that at one point in the ancient past, um, God may have recognized that humans had slavery, but they were supposed to get out of it, they were supposed to improve that now in the Christian world, slavery was wrong. So both sides felt firmly that they were on the side of God. And uh, as a result, uh, someone like Polk, he paid money to support the building of a church uh, for his slaves and for people enslaved by his neighbors. 
um, the lessons that would be taught in these slaves specifically set up for enslaved black, these churches uh, set up for enslaved black people um, were, as I said earlier, humility and hard work, uh, things that would encourage them to be good slaves, not uh, the more freedom-based principles, uh, individual conscience-based principles that might lead them to rebel against the system. Sounded like uh, the people in charge needed to know, needed to learn how to be good citizens themselves. That's what it sounds like. Sometimes they showed their, their hypocrisy in curious ways. Uh, one of the people I've studied uh, is a man named John Little who was a U.S. citizen, he was from Philadelphia, and a black man. Uh, through a very strange series of events, he ended up being uh, illegally enslaved in Cuba um, in the 1830s and 1840s. Uh, and when the U.S. government found out about this, uh, Polk and people under him, uh, his Secretary of State James Buchanan, the future president, uh, and the U.S. consul in, uh, in Cuba, a man named John Campbell, uh, they worked very hard to free this man, a, a black man who had been enslaved, as they saw it, illegally because he was a citizen. He was a free American. Um, yet at the same time, these people were, uh, were doing nothing to free the uh, African Americans in the U.S. because they believed they were legally enslaved. They drew this artificial distinction over some who deserve freedom, some who deserve slavery. Uh, it usually fell along racial lines, but sometimes uh, it didn't. Very interesting, our history. It's very interesting. And from my own understanding, Zachary Taylor was the last president to have slaves while in the White House. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and that was uh, while he was in the White House, he had a well, he owned over 130 slaves um, at the time of his death. He died as president. Uh, most of them were still in his plantations in Mississippi and Louisiana, but some of them did work in the White House itself. And that was how many years before the Civil War? Um, that was uh, 11 years before. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you for your enlightening um, information, where we have come as a nation and where we are right now. And I do hope, and I do hope um, there will be some resolution with the race issues in our nation um, with regards to where we are now, where we need to be, and um, the statues coming down. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great being here. Same here. Mm -hmm. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael David Cohen, for sharing his research and opinions on the history of race, slavery, and equality in the United States. And I want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit us online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal or professional advice. And don't forget, subscribe online. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.